These conversations touch on some really heavy themes. Please listen with care. Hi, I'm Prudence Granger, and I was the carer for my dad who had early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm currently the carer in residence for the Carer Knowledge Exchange. This is Care to Share. On this show, I have open and honest conversations with carers. Today, I'm sitting down with Peter and Keith. They met while caring for their wives and have developed a deep friendship over the years. This is the first time I've sat down and really heard their story. It was so lovely to learn about their connection and the support they give one another. How do I start? I started by asking them to introduce each other. Okay, this is Keith. He's my carer. Well, not really. He's my friend. Since 2015, we've been friends. We see each other every day for coffee most of the time or lunch or dinner or whatever. Yeah, he's loyal. He's knowledgeable. He's persistent. He's encouraging. He calms me down and he encourages me by saying, yeah, that's well done. Yes, you say that. Just great guy to be with. Terrific. And Keith, how would you describe Peter? Yeah, Peter, he's my carer. And he said we're friends, we are, but we do care for each other in the sense of uh, keeping an eye on things, making sure things are working the way they should be. Yeah, that life is as good as it can be. Seeing him every day is good. Having a coffee is good. Being able to be involved in volunteering and anything to do with dementia, dementia care, is good. Sometimes when we're having a coffee, we'll look at each other and say, what else could we talk about? (laughs) Okay, well, let's officially begin. Keith, Peter, thank you for coming in today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your stories and about how you've developed your relationship through care. But to begin, I would love to hear more about your love stories with your beautiful wife. So, Peter, let's start with you. Where did you meet Joyce? At college in Manchester in England. She was doing a secretarial course and I was just messing around as she put it. (laughs) I was supposed to be studying, but I spent more time organising youth club, uh, drama, uh, raffles for charity and things like that. And I used to go around each of the classrooms and employ people to go sell raffle tickets in Manchester in the theatres and on the streets and what have you. And I spotted Joyce when I was in one of the classrooms, then met her upstairs for coffee, lunchtime, bingo. And it just went from there. And uh, she had a boyfriend at the time, and I organised a dance, and she brought her boyfriend. But on the way to the college, she broke the heel of her high heels. And when she got there, I said, oh, I can repair that. And I got my friend, Merrick, and we went down to the woodwork room and repaired the heel and uh, just screwed it back on. And then she spent 
the rest of the evening with me outside. <laughs> Our poor boyfriend was inside with no friends at all. Soon after, she told him she didn't want to see him anymore, and that was in 1958. Wow. We got married in 1962, went back home and set up a house which we'd bought a few weeks before. We had Jamie, our son, in uh, 1968, and our daughter in 1970. Joyce's parents came to Australia just after Jamie was born. So Joyce suggested we spend two years in Australia in 1974. <laughs> I've been here ever since because uh, it's such a great country. I did all sorts of things. I owned a post office, um, record bar. Wine bar. <laughs> I did all those kind of things. Sounds very eclectic and fun. <laughs> yeah. And then 2011, uh, I noticed a change in Joyce. And basically it was, she was putting things away in the kitchen in different places. I asked my doctor if he'd look after Joyce as well. And he said, yes, certainly. I took Joyce and he gave her a mini mental test and... Uh, and then a brain scan and a blood test and sent us to Concord Hospital to do the two-and-a-half-hour test. I couldn't sit in with it. Went for a walk, came back. The doctor who was doing the test walked through the waiting room and she turned to me and said, I'm not supposed to tell you because I report to the specialist, but, yeah, she's got dementia. And we were fine for a while until... 2014 early. She had vascular dementia and Alzheimer's and vascular dementia is pretty severe. They just steps. It's a, mm, sudden steps. It's like cliff fall, you know. And first one she had, I had no idea what was going on. By this time, I'd had a level one package and I had carers coming in for about five hours a week which is not a lot. <laughs> no, not at all. But it gave me time for catching up on sleep, which I didn't have a lot of because Joyce didn't sleep. You know, circadian rhythms had all got messed up and she was wandering around the house and I couldn't leave her wandering on her own. By this time, uh, I'd arranged a respite. 2015, she was on respite in January and they offered me a a room so she could move in permanently because I, I was going to pop. My mm. doctor had said, you know, do something about it. You've just lost nine kilos in three months, you know. So I accepted and Joyce moved into residential care, which is not easy, as you very well know. Yes. When you received the diagnosis. Yes. The doctor who said, you know, I'm not supposed to tell you, but this is dementia, with that diagnosis for you, what did that mean to you in that moment? I suspected, but with confirmation, I felt a bit devastated because I wanted to spend my retirement with her and we could go traveling and do all sorts of things. Although I didn't know a lot about dementia at the time, I thought this may be not possible anymore. So it was, it was devastating. When I told the kids, I broke down. Often do when I think of mm. periods like that. 
but yeah, it's it's pretty devastating. You're frightened of something that you don't know anything about. And uh, Keith and I took it upon ourselves to learn all about dementia. We did the dementia courses. We did anything we could mm. to learn to be a better carer. Mm, it's beautiful. It's very clear from listening to you and the way you speak of these experiences and what you chose to learn and understand and that you had such a very, very deep love for your wife. Oh, yeah. And Still have. Uh, yes, of course. And I think it's really, it's really beautiful to hear that love and that compassion and to be able to continue that through something so challenging. Thank you for sharing. I am going to segue now to Keith's love story with Bev. So you went to the same high school. Yes, we did. But it wasn't till later that you got together. So tell me, how did that all come about? Well, in the late 50s, we were both at the same high school in Perth. There weren't many high schools in Perth in those days. This was a big one. Bev was a year ahead of me, and uh, I can vaguely remember her in a group. She says, likewise, she could vaguely remember me in a group, but there were there were a lot of kids. When Bev completed her final year studies, she went to Teachers College. In those days, it was a two-year course for primary teaching. So that would have been in 1959. She went to college. Uh, I was still at high school. The following year, I went to Teachers College, but a different one. There were two, two at the time in Perth, so we didn't see any, anything of each other then. She was appointed to a little wheat belt town when she graduated. The deal in those days was that the department gave you a bond, a slight allowance that you had through your training, but you were obliged to go bush for two years, teach in the country for two years, which was a good system. It suited Bev. She was keen to get away from home. The following year when I graduated, uh, as chance would have it, I got appointed to the same country town. So that's where we really met. It was a great start. Bev already had a boyfriend. One of the farmers, local farmers, had taken on the Bev, which was what farmers did with nurses and teachers and so on in those days. I had a girlfriend in Perth, so... You know, it was just colleagues. Gradually things sort of started to fall into place. By Christmas that year, we really were going together and uh, I'd met her family, she'd met my family. We decided, you know, this is pretty serious. We'd like to, to get together, uh, you know, to marry. So we sort of unofficially got engaged and uh, we decided we'd get married in the August holidays of 1963. As it turned out, the only house we could get was on a farm out of town and that turned out to be a real blessing in disguise. It was a wonderful situation to have married life together and it was rent free because I could work on the farm, seeding time and harvest and during the school holidays. What was it about the farm that made it so special for those early years of marriage? It was isolated but it was not isolated. It was only 15 k's from the town, but it was quiet. It was away from the road, you know. The, there were sheep in the paddock. I still get quite sentimental when I hear sheep bleat 
because that sort of brings it all all back. Yeah, a year after we were there, our daughter Karen was born, early 66. Our second daughter Lisa was born. Yeah, it would have been probably a couple of years after that, our son was born, 68. It was just fantastic. And Bev was just, she was fantastic as a teacher. She just was something else. You know, she was really great. From there, we went to a series of different schools around WA. We used to come across, we used to travel across to decent states pretty regularly because we had family over here. And as we left to come home in 2006, our daughter Lisa in um, Sydney, as we were due to come home, she took me aside and she said, is mum all right? I said, yeah, she's fine. What's What do you mean, is mum all right? She said, oh, Rob, that's her husband. Said, there's something just not quite right with Bev. I said, no, she's fine. And we travelled home and got on with life. And a few months later, our eldest daughter, who was in Perth, she's a bit more blunt about these sort of things. And she said to me, when are you going to do something about mum's bloody Alzheimer's? Oh. I went, blimey. (laughs) Um, But it made me think. And life was still the same as ever, you know. We were still doing whatever we wanted to do. Do you think maybe because you were with Bev all day, every day, perhaps the little changes weren't noticed because it was what you were used to? Yeah, which is fairly normal. After things started to uh, become apparent with Bev, she was forgetting things. She was, like Peter said, things would go in the wrong place or she was a really brilliant cook, but things didn't often, well, not often, occasionally it didn't work. And I thought, whoa. So we talked a bit about it and she said, there is nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. And she maintained that all the way through. She's a very strong, strong lady. I, I would have been the same, I think. She just denied that there was any problem. So when it came to really needing to do something about it, it was a problem. She wouldn't accept that she needed even to be assessed or anything like that. How did that affect you? It was very frustrating because I knew there was a problem and we needed to do something about it. And the kids were, they were well aware too, you know. And uh, in the interim, on, on our travels over here, we decided we, when we retired fully, we would try and live in the Blue Mountains. And that all came to pass. And uh, fortunately, we both got onto the same doctor that Peter and Joyce had, and he was well aware of of things to do with dementia, because they're not all that way, you know. So he was able to give us both a test. So doing it together convinced her to do it. Yeah. Anyway, the, the little test showed that, yeah, she had a problem. We went to Westmead to do the big assessments. I wasn't allowed to go in either, but I was out in the waiting room and about halfway through, the uh, doctor came out and he said to me, I've not seen somebody apply themselves so strongly to these tests. He said, but already we can see that there's some serious problems. She had Alzheimer's in dementia. And that was a relief, you know, to get 
something that you could hang on to, but also sure you thought, oh, God, what's going to happen now, you know? Back home, Bev was still in denial. We just got on with things as best we could, which was a good life, you know? We'd jump on the train, come to Sydney for the day, get on the ferry, go to Manly, have lunch, come home, all that sort of stuff. We kept doing that until it became too fraught, you know, Bev would be trying to get off the train way before our stop and that sort of thing. I had to keep an eye on her because she'd get lost. In 2013, we got a package, but Bev wouldn't have a bar of it. She didn't want people in her house, so I can do all this. And so I would say to the coordinators, um, look, thank you, but it's too stressful, you know. The one thing she did take to, though, part of the package was daycare. Twice a week she could go to a local daycare. On most days she was ready to go. You know, I could get her in the shower. She'd be happy for me to help her with the shower and get her ready. It wasn't always like that. You know, you'd think, oh, that's great. But the next day, Mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. And sometimes it didn't. Joyce went to the same daycare centre. Right. When you say, can you just define what you mean by daycare? It was an activity centre where they would be picked up, taken for the day. Do all sorts do of Do all things. sorts of stuff, dancing, music. Nice. You know. And respite for respite the carer. Respite for the carer. That was the deal. Joyce had the same problem about going to daycare. Most of the time, she loved to. But occasionally, she said, no, I don't want to go. I would take the dog down the track, which is the back of our house, and Joyce to the bus, which had stopped at the end of the track. The dog would get on the bus, and Joyce would follow the dog. The dog would say hello to all the people that were on the bus, and then she'd sit down and I'd get off the bus. That's the way I did it. Mm. Most of the time, she was loved to go. And when she came home, she was just full of beans. You know, they'd done all sorts of things. Mm. And I think this is a thing with, with Alzheimer's is... Every day is different. Absolutely. You think you've got it figured it out, you've got a pattern, you've got a routine, and then something happens and it shakes you and you've got to start all over again. And it can be really exhausting. Mm. Yeah, certainly can. How did the two of you come into each other's lives? Maybe three or four months before Joyce moved into residential care, I was at a support group. And I met Keith and Bev. And, yeah, we seemed to get on fairly well, but that was it. Didn't see him again. But the week that Joyce was given residential care, Bev moved in. Uh, So it was virtually the same week. Simpatico. It was meant to be. It was meant to be, exactly. I think the other thing that, that helped the relationship was that we both got involved with Morven Gardens the residential facility where our Bev and Joyce were. And we were there every day for our wives. Seven days a week. But we we found ourselves becoming more involved with the carers and what was going on around us. I mean, they were both still mobile. We could go off down for morning tea and exercises and 
do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I realised then that I needed to be a volunteer, so I had yeah. to sign the forms. He was already a volunteer. It was a bit of worry because he had to get a police check, but... <laughs> I passed. Yeah. We flying colours. Phew. <laughs> but seriously, that was very helpful in terms of us because we then started to bounce off each other a bit about yeah. what's happening, what do we do next, you know, yeah. and that fell into we've got to know a bit more about this. I just want to jump in here because it sounds like, you know, they went into full-time care and yet your caring responsibilities continued. There's this idea that, oh, they're in full-time care now, you're not a care anymore, but that's not the truth no. because you have your loved one's best interest at heart. So can you walk me through a little bit? of that transition and how you still showed up, whether there was more joy in how you could show up or if it was still difficult, what did that feel like? You you become a better carer. I became a better carer because I could sleep, I could eat properly, and I had time to think and we picked up on education. I became a better carer hmm. and we'd spend hours and hours there, and we didn't think it was a chore. It was what we should do. Mm. Joyce had looked after me when I was working all my life, virtually since we got married. It was time I paid back. Mm. So I was there every day helping, taking her down to activities and eventually feeding her. And I used to shower her not just at home, but in the residential care facility because something the carers didn't have to do because they're already busy. So I did it. Mm. And um, you just you just do it because you want to do it. It's not a chore, is it? No, not at all. I mean, still, you know, I'll miss being with Bev today. Personally and professionally, Bev and I have been together all our adult life and it hasn't changed. I'm still up there every day because I want to be up there. I still want to be with Bev. Mm. Yeah, it's like this stage with Bev. I mean, she's just totally just in her own little world of the present. You know, she doesn't relate to anything, far as I'm aware, in terms of the past or future. It's just here and now. And occasionally she'll nod and I wonder sometimes whether she has heard and understood, you know, like you're nice and warm and there'll be a nod and I think, was that just coincidental or was it? Mm. It doesn't matter. You know, there's still the relationship there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. No. I think she understands quite a lot because sometimes I approach her. True. And then she'll go, who are you? (laughs) She doesn't say it, but, you know, the facial expression. Mm. And then next time I approach her, could be five or ten minutes later or half an hour later, holds out a hand and I'll hold a hand. She just accepts it. Yeah. She understands. I know she's understanding. It's just a facial expression on her. It's a feelings thing. Mm. It is a feeling, um, emotion, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm heartened that... Most of the time, she seems happy and content. If she wasn't, I, I, I don't know how I would be. Yeah. You know, I can I can handle this and make the most of whatever because she's, A, she's very well cared for. It's a great place for her to be in. And, B, I feel that she still 
happy. Mm. Yeah. She'll be asleep and she'll, you can see she's dreaming. And she'll wake up and, oh, and I'd say, to her, oh, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> what was that all about? You know. But if it wasn't for that, I think I would probably, yeah, I'd struggle. Struggling. So through these transitions and settling your wives into aged care, what did it mean to have each other as a support system? Oh, wow. I don't think I could have handled it, particularly when Joyce passed away. He was my crutch. Yeah, I had family. They weren't close at the time, but I saw Keith every day. I, I only stayed away from Morven Gardens for about a week, a week and a half. Then I went back as a volunteer mm. because I needed to be there to do something for the others, but also for me. I felt closer because that's where Joyce lived, but I needed to do something. And and I was inside. I was in the kitchen most of the time. And uh, I conversed with the residents who could converse and just had, you know, this close relationship. Keith used to come and say, um, can I help? And I said, no, you look after Bev. I'll, I'll do the washing up. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a really close relationship during that early period. Well, still do. Clearly. You yeah. guys finish each other's sentences. <laughs> Our respective families got to know each other as well. And, yeah, I can recall a few times where I either overheard or was part of a conversation where somebody in my family would say, thank goodness for Peter. Same the other way around. Yeah. You hear a lot of stories about female carers. It's very rare to hear about men caring. And do you think it's because there aren't as many or because perhaps they're a little bit more hidden? They isolate to themselves a little more than less likely to reach out for that support? Yeah, we don't, we don't ask for help because we can do it. We know that we know we can't, but a lot of men don't go to doctors. Men don't do this and don't make friends easily. But yeah. yeah, and from a well-being perspective, I guess that mentality of I can do it by myself and isolating yourself in those situations—what does that create? Oh, it does well, a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah, I think Peter said earlier on that you become a better carer when somebody's in care and getting supported. You could knock that back the other way. And, I mean, I was getting to that stage before Bev went into care. It mm. was just becoming all-consuming. You know, you just didn't know where to go. Um, there were little bits of humour. I mean, that's like life generally. You've got to have a laugh every you now like and then. Don't laugh, you'll cry. <laughs> that's right. But I get a sense that for guys, what you said, I think it's both of those things, less of them and also more like I can do this sort of stuff. But you can't, you know, and uh, like I said towards the end of when, before Bev went into care, I, I, I was going to go under. Simple as that. Mm. What do you think needs to change? How do we circumvent this from happening? Case managers would be good. And right at the beginning when the diagnosis is made, you need help and you don't know where to go. And... Why can't GPs and geriatricians and neurologists give out that information? A booklet. I've had people say, oh, no, you're too confused. 
You don't need to read it straight away, but you've got it there. Contact numbers. Dementia Australia, 1800, 100, 500. That's embedded here because whenever it, anybody asks me, I don't know what to do. I say ring 1800, 100, 500. They will help you. They know. I think as well an awareness within the health system, that awareness that when you get into this mentality of care, all of a sudden all your priorities are to someone else. So you go by the wayside. So to check in on the carer to, okay, you've created an appointment for who you're caring for. Let's check you while you're here because you don't have time to go yourself. Yeah, Like that foresight to see that mm. the slack is going to have to be picked up somewhere. We're all looking after each other and trying to help each other, but who's there for us? Yeah. And that's really hard. I was at a support group meeting a long time ago now when the speaker said, who's the most important person in your situation? And you say, oh, my wife. No, you are. Mm. Because if you fall over, she's got nobody to look at. You're the most important. You, and you sit back and go, hmm, not sure about that. But yeah, in a way, they're right. Yeah. My doctor said to me one day, you need to step back. And I'd say, I can't. I love her. I've known her for 50 odd years. I'm not going to step back. He said, well, be careful. Mm. But by this time, I was losing weight, you know, and rapidly, not having any sleep. Mm. But I couldn't, I couldn't step back. There's no way. love stories with your wives and you know this care and this love and I feel it and I see it with my mum and her love for my dad and the sacrifices that she makes and everything that we've been through in this illness it's so devastating and I feel very lucky that I managed to find support systems because not everybody does. That's true. When you're caring you don't regard it as a sacrifice. Mm. It's something mm. you just do mm. yeah. because you want to. Yeah. Mm. It's not a sacrifice. It just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yeah. 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 Like what was the other option? Walk away. Mm. Can't do that. No, exactly. You, you can't do that, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate what you've both shared about your lives, your love stories with your wives and I guess to an extent with each other. <laughs> um, you know, friendship is is really important. And I think it is a beautiful message to share that doing anything with someone else makes it easier. Not being alone, when you isolate, things are definitely harder. And so thank you for sharing that story. And I look forward to seeing what else you do in the care and dementia space, as you've got a lot of wonderful projects and peer supports and communities that you're creating. So thank you for creating those. Thank you. It is a pleasure and I hope it's helpful for those that are in similar circumstances. Mm.